Saving money on your outdoor project? Now at Menards. We have everything you need to keep your outdoor power equipment running smooth so you can keep that lawn in tip-top shape or enjoy some time on your boat. Right now, all FVP, lawn and garden, and marine batteries are on sale through May 5th. Check out our entire selection of FVP batteries today and view our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals. Save big money at Menards. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, a refreshing and captivating interview with top sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. They reveal some entertaining, memorable, and emotional stories, some you've never heard before. I'm George Hoffman, and please make sure you subscribe to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcast. And don't forget the free TuneIn app. We're there, too. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is presented by Vienna Beef, makers of Chicago's hot dog on a Chicago landmark business since 1893. There is nothing like a Vienna hot dog or one of their Polish sausages, and their products are available coast to coast at ViennaBeef.com and through Amazon. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is also sponsored by the Polina Market, Chicago's top purveyor of fine meats, poultry, fish, fresh frozen prepared foods, wine, beer, and now serving fresh sandwiches. They've been a staple in the city since 1949. This week, we flash back to several wonderful stories during the first season of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. We begin with the iconic Bob Costas, who had a rollicking time remembering the Sandberg game, not just for his memorable call, but something that happened late in that famous broadcast and afterwards. Yeah, I think most people listening to this know the particulars, and there's been so much rehashing of it, and I mean that in the best sense, documentaries about it uh, and conversation about it each time June 23rd comes up. It's perhaps the most famous regular season game, certainly one of the most famous regular season games in baseball history. And as I've said before, one of the key elements here is what the game of the week was in the 1980s. It really was the game of the week. You didn't have the proliferation of games on television that you do now, or the streaming services and the internet and all the highlight shows hadn't taken hold. So this had the attention of a huge portion of the baseball public, including many baseball players, managers, whatever, who weren't gonna play until that night. There may have been other games since, I'm sure there have been, that had the same kinds of ups and downs as that game. But that game had center stage, as much as a regular season game can have center stage nationally. Then you have the setting. It's Wrigley Field. And if they had been playing someone other than the Cardinals, maybe it wouldn't have meant as much. But it's the Cardinals. Friendly rivalry, not a bitter rivalry for the most part, like Red Sox-Yankees or like the Dodgers and, and Giants sometimes were, but still a rivalry. We know that there was a lot of red in the stands at Wrigley that day. There's a lot of blue in the stands when the Cubs come to St. Louis. So you had 
all the elements. And then the game played out as it did with Ryan Sandberg hitting the two last ditch homers off Bruce Suter, not just any reliever, but then the premier reliever in baseball. Okay. So now we get to the bottom of the 10th inning. Sandberg has tied the game with the first of his homers off Suter tied at nine, nine. At one point, the Cubs trailed nine to three ties at nine, nine. Willie McGee, who almost has a footnote, hit for the cycle in that game, delivers an RBI double, and then scores an insurance run, what looked like an insurance run. So now the score is 11 to 9 with two outs and nobody on in the bottom of the 10th. And Bob Dernier gets a walk on a 3 2 pitch, a 3 2 pitch that Daryl Porter didn't hold. And at the time, Tony Kubek, who is a very alert analyst, says if he'd held that ball, Maybe Doug Harvey would have called it strike three, but his dropping it creates perhaps the illusion that it was ball instead of a strike. So on the three, two pitch, he draws the walk and here comes Sandberg again. But, and here's the part of the story you don't know, George, people have said, some Chicago fans have said through the years that I gave up on the Cubs because I started to read the credits. But here's the reason. There was a fight on Sports World. Marv Albert and Ferdy Pacheco were standing by in Panama, perhaps under the watchful eye of General Noriega, standing <laughs> by in Panama for a fight on Sports World, and they literally were holding the opening bell. The fighters were in the locker rooms for like 45 minutes because they weren't going to start the fight until the game was over. So now, with two outs in the bottom of the 10th, we were going to go with a hot switch to Panama. So I had to read the player of the game, which was sponsored, and I had to read the other credits quickly. Our game today was produced by Ken Edmondson, directed by Bucky Guntz. Mike Weissman is the executive producer of NBC Sports, coordinating producer of baseball, Harry Coyle. 1-1 pitch. And so we gave Willie McGee the player of the game, which at that moment he was. I got it in between pitches. It didn't overlap any of the action. And then Sandberg homers to tie the game. So we gave Sandberg complete credit. The Natural had just come out that summer, uh, the Robert Redford movie based on the Bernard Malamud book. And I said something like, this may be the real, the real life Roy Hobbs. Uh, if you submitted this as a movie script, they might throw it away as too implausible. And that game, and Sandberg says it himself, that game was what marked him as an MVP candidate, and he did win it. It's the signature game of his Hall of Fame career. Okay, now the game is over. And Dallas Green, who I liked very much uh, and did a great job uh, running the Cubs in that period of time and making them a contender. As we all know, Dallas was a passionate man. And he came storming into the press room after the Cubs had won the game in the 11th on a pinch hit by Dave Owen, the most, <laughs> the most memorable moment of his big league career. And he's very good natured about it, uh, that he was kind of taken along for the ride. And then he provided the punctuation with the base hit that won the game. Dallas Green comes into the press room and he says, they all gave up on us. NBC gave up on us. Costas <laughs> gave up on us. But we came back and we won it, damn it. You know, and he, he was loud. You know, he had that John Wayne voice. Even his conversational voice could be heard in different area codes. Very you know? intimidating. 
Yeah, he was a, a big man. He was. He was intimidating, but I liked him a lot, and I understood the emotion of the moment, and, and I took it all as a positive, but that's the true story. It was a joy to hear White Sox radio play-by-play guy Len Casper remember the stairs he had to climb to get here, including his role with the Packers, the Brewers, and another iconic figure, Bob Euchre. <laughs> Bob Euchre. I will tell that story first. He kind of took me under his wing, as did his partner at the time, Pat Hughes. Uh, Pat was uh, the Brewers' number two announcer before uh, he came to Chicago in 1996. Well, I was doing the afternoon show from three to six on WTMJ Radio, the Brewers' flagship. Uh, I did the sports reports, uh, I believe, at uh, 20 and 50 (laughs) uh, past the hour. And we tended to have a lot of fun and a lot of Uh, The sports stories and bits that I did were not the obvious nuts and bolts uh, sports items. Well, for some reason, I got it in my head, and I don't know if it was my idea or somebody else at the station, but we had a little fun with some music. And if you remember the old Gary Glitter song, Rock and Roll Part Two, mm-hmm. there basically are no lyrics other than da 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 da, hey, da 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 da, right? It's been played at every sports arena and ballpark uh, for the last 40 or 50 years. Well, one of Bob's signature calls was his home run call. And it was get up, get out of here, gone. But he would typically say, hey, get up, get out of here, gone. A home run for Molitor and the Brewers lead 4-3. So we thought his hey would fit really well in that song. So I think during one of my sports reports, we played the song and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Hey, you hear Euchre. <laughs> it was great. Everybody loved it. We had a barrel, but just it was so much fun. We laughed. So we did that for a couple of days. And the Brewers are in Boston. And I get uh, a, a call from the engineering department, which was just down the hall from the studio. So I I go from the on-air studio into the engineering office, and one of the engineers at the station said, uh, Kent Sommerfeld, who still is the Brewers on-site engineer, wants to talk with you. I said, oh, okay. So I grabbed the phone. Hey, Kent, how are you? He goes, hey, Len, um, you uh, wants to talk with you for a second. I said, sure. So he grabs the phone. What the blankety blank are you doing to me? I'm like, Uh, Hi, Bob. My heart sank. I had never heard more expletives in my life. What do you think I am, a clown? You're making fun of me, playing this stupid song on the air every day and laughing at me? I thought we were friends. I mean, he cut right to the chase. It was a good three or four minutes of a tongue lashing. Then there was a long pause. I, I, I mean, I'm sweating bullets. I'm probably in tears. And he goes, I'm just kidding. (laughs) And I knew at that moment I was in. In fact, Bob didn't even know the story. Kent had kind of told him, hey, they're doing this funny bit on the station. You should hear it. 
And instead of listening to it, he just decided to call me and rake me over the coals for the bit. Uh, so with Bob, that's how you know you're one of his good friends. He's treated me incredibly well. Uh, the Packers and the Brewers stories, you know, I, I did Packers pregame, halftime, postgame during the Favre, Holmgren, Wolf era. Uh, that included a couple of uh, trips to the Super Bowl. Uh, I actually, here, here's a good one. I attended Super Bowl week twice, once in New Orleans, the year the Packers beat uh, the Patriots. And I covered the Super Bowl the next year when the Packers played the Broncos in San Diego. But in both cases, I wasn't at the game. We were there for the week, and we ended up flying back to Milwaukee for the actual game. So it was one of those kind of bittersweet things. It was cool to be uh, in the middle of the action for Super Bowl week, but it just made more sense logistically uh, to, to do the pre and post game from Milwaukee. But that first year, Howard David was the voice of the Milwaukee Bucks on WTMJ. May I, may I interrupt for a moment? A wonderful yep. human being who I was working with uh, as a freelancer when he's with the, uh, the CBS radio network. I always called him the man with two first names. That's right. <laughs> Howard was great. So he was the voice of the Bucks. He was also the, I believe, Westwood One voice of the NFL. So he had to miss a game to call the Super Bowl that year. His backup announcer was Dennis Krause, longtime television uh, sportscaster and had uh, dabbled in radio. Well, Dennis was on site in New Orleans to cover the Super Bowl for uh, the TV station at WTMJ. So I got a phone call. Hey, can you fill in on Saturday, the day before the Super Bowl in Indianapolis for the Bucks Pacers game? I said, sure. So I called one NBA game in my life. It ended up being a Bucks buzzer beater. Elliot Perry hit one from about 16 feet away, literally at the buzzer to beat the Pacers. And that is my NBA claim to fame. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is presented by Vienna Beef, Chicago's hot dog and a Chicago institution since 1893. If you've had a hot dog, chances are it was from Vienna. And did you know there are more locations selling Vienna in Chicago than McDonald's, Burger King, and Wendy's combined? There's nothing like biting into a juicy and delicious pure beef Vienna hot dog dragged through the garden, which includes yellow mustard, onions, relish, tomatoes, sport peppers, pickles, and some celery salt, and oh, those Polish sausages dripping with flavor. And look for the new spicy smoked sausage available in your local retail stores. It includes a perfect blend of seasonings such as crushed red peppers and brown sugar creating a bold and zesty taste. Vienna products are available in restaurants, grocery stores, and entertainment venues such as the ballpark, Sox and Cubs, stadiums, museums, and the zoos. Plus you can purchase them online coast to coast at ViennaBeef.com and Amazon. And remember, Vienna's not just hot dogs and sausages. Look for their farm makers' chili, mini bagel dogs, condiments, and classic deli meats. Take it from a guy who was weaned on, then sold Vienna products. It's the mark of excellence since 1893. Check them out at ViennaBeef.com. 
The easiest way to hear more great guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is to follow me on social media at George Hoffman. That's O-F-M-A-N, just one F, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the free TuneIn app, and wherever you get your podcasts. Of all the stories told during the first season of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, this one is an absolute classic. Eddie Olchek not only remembered the birth of his second child, but did so in elaborate detail. <laughs> well, this this is probably the one that uh, gets the uh, gets the cake when it comes to uh, finding out. And all people get. Uh, in sports, get traded, get fired, and, and, and every day goings on, George. We know that. People get released. People get terminated. So it was November 9th, 1990. Uh, it was an off day in Toronto. We were getting ready to play, oddly enough, the Blackhawks on the next day on November 10th, Hockey Night in Canada, Saturday night. And my wife, Diana, uh, was very pregnant, and her water broke on that Friday night on November 9th. So again, no cell phones back then for Eddie Olchek. So I called our team PR man, uh, Bob Stelick, and I told him, I said, hey, look, I'm not going to be at the morning skate tomorrow, but I am going to be at the game. Diana's going into labor. You know, I'll try to keep you abreast of what's going on, but just know and let the coaches know and let our general manager, Floyd Smith, know that I'm going to be at the game tomorrow night. So, of course, Diana doesn't cooperate that Friday night, and now it is very early on Saturday morning, and Diana is still not cooperating. Meaning, uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, George, she was probably a a 1.5 or a (laughs) 2. But I thought, you know what? It's an 8 o'clock game. We got lots of time. We got 12 hours. You know, I could get to the Maple Leaf Gardens in a matter of about a half hour. So at about 11.30, I call to just check in with the Maple Leafs and let them know, say, hey, look it. Diana hasn't had the baby yet, but I'm going to be at the game. So at about 2.30, 3 o'clock, George, uh, Diana starts cooperating. So she goes from about a 1 to about a 5 or a 6. And the doctor says, okay, Diana, hold on. Let me put my catcher's mitt on here. We're, we're going we're gonna to have ourselves a baby. Okay, I'm like, okay, I get the analogy here, Doc. So let's go. I got a hockey game to get to. That was pretty much what I was thinking about. So while we're in labor, at about five o'clock Eastern, a nurse taps me on the shoulder and she hands me a note. And all it says on the note, it says, the Maple Leafs are on the phone. So I look at her and again, my wife is on her back. Obviously she's getting ready to have the baby. The doctor is at the foot of the bed. There's all kinds of medical contraptions everywhere. There's people all over the place. And I tell the nurse, tell the Leafs I will be at the game. Diana is having the baby. She leaves. She might've been gone, George, maybe 90 seconds. She comes back. She goes, they really want to talk to you. And I'm like, what do you, what do I do, George? What do I do at that particular stage? Do I sit there and take the call or two, do I sit there and continue to support my wife on giving birth with our second child? Do you have any inkling of what's about to happen? I do not. I have no idea. I think they're just calling the check-in on my wife. That's what I think. Hey, are you going to be at the game? We're going to have to play somebody for you. Uh, You know, hey, take the night off. We'll get through the game without you. That's what I was thinking. So, you know, Monty Hall, let's make a deal. I say, ah, screw it. I'm going to go take the call. 
So, so I sneak out of the room as I'm walking. My wife is going, where are you going? She goes, I, I got to take a phone call. So I walk out of the, I walk out of the delivery room. I go to the nurse's station, which is maybe, you know, 20 yards away. I get on the phone. They, you know, they unhook the whole button. I get on there and it's Bob Stellick, the PR guy for the Leafs. He goes, Hey Eddie, how's Diana? I go, Bob, she's having a baby. I'm going to be at the game. He goes, well, call us after she has the baby. I said, Bob, I'm not calling. I'm leaving and I'll be at the game. I'm going to play. And then there's a silent pause, an awkward pause, George. And all Bob says, hold on a second. And I'm like, I got to go. She's having a baby. He goes, hold on. The general manager of the Toronto Maple Leafs is on the other line. It's Floyd Smith. He goes, Eddie, we hate to do this to you right now. <laughs> we hate to do this to you right now. But I have to inform you by league rules, we have just traded you to the Winnipeg Jets. And George, at that time, like my heart stopped. I was like, you gotta be bleeping me. You gotta be kidding. You just traded me while my wife is in the delivery room giving birth to our child. And you have the balls to call me <laughs> and tell me that I got traded. So I said, you know what? I can't believe it. I'm embarrassed. This is, you know, this is bullshit. And, and he said, look, I had to do it. I had to tell you before it became public, whatever. And I just says, ah, you know what? Forget about it. And I just hung up the phone. So now I'm in, I'm stunned now, George. Like I am just absolutely. Now again, this call was maybe 45 seconds. So I'm standing at the nurse's station. Like, what do I do? What the hell do I do? Now, most people would say is you get your ass back in the delivery room and you have the baby with your wife. I wasn't exactly thinking clear because I'm like, how am I going to do this? So I get on the phone. I call my dad, tell him I was traded. Then I wander back into the delivery room. And it's probably, George, honestly, now it's maybe, maybe five minutes, maybe since the time I left to the time I come back. And again, I'll paint the picture. Doctors in the room, nurses in the room, medical contraptions everywhere. And the lovely and talented Diana Olchek on her back, getting ready to give birth. She, she sees me walk in and she goes, where in the hell have you been? And I'm like, uh, my aunt's sick. And she looks at me, George. She looks at the ceiling. She looks back at me. And I swear on my last, on my last breath, she says to me, where are we going? Oh, she knew. She knew. George. And I <laughs> said to myself, I said, psychic and pregnant oh my <laughs> god right so so i sit there and go well now i take a quick look over at the doctor that's at the foot of the bed and he's got this look on his face like how are you gonna get yourself out of this one old check now remember let me let me go back a little bit now remember when i left the room diana was like a seven or an eight on a scale of one to ten to have the baby so she's pretty damn close so i say guess she looks at me looks at the ceiling and again i swear on my last breath she says winnipeg and i go oh my goodness how in the hell did she know so all of a sudden i look back at the foot of the bed and, I, and i'm shaking my head i could not answer i i just looking at my i i'm looking at, at looking at her 
and she's and I just shaking my head, George. Like I I couldn't I couldn't speak. I'm like, how did you know? That's what I'm saying inside. And she's just I'm shaking my head. She's shaking her head, and she wasn't shaking her head about anything other than is like, you know what? I can I can under, I I can feel our child saying, you know what? It's not the time right now. And I look at the foot of the bed, and I see the doctor, and the doctor's pulling off his rubber gloves, going, all right going to put the catcher's mitt away for a while here. This baby isn't going to be born. <laughs> this baby's not going to be born for a while. <laughs> so Diana absolutely shut down, uh, but proud to say uh, about two and a half hours later, uh, Thomas Vincent Olchek came into this world on November 10th, 1990, and uh, got a chance to be with Diana and uh, Tommy that night. And like a hockey player or somebody has a commitment i got in an airplane the next morning george flew to chicago played my first game as a winnipeg jet against the blackhawks and then i flew home the next day oddly enough the winnipeg jets were playing the toronto maple leafs on monday night back in toronto and then eventually got there brought diana and tommy home and then i made my way to winnipeg until they joined me about six weeks later How many of you have been pronounced dead? I'll bet the answer is none of you. Kenny McReynolds has. The longtime Chicago sportscaster explained this rather bizarre set of circumstances that occurred in 2017, and it's a story you have to hear to believe. Well, George, what happened was that I had a tumor removed from my left shoulder back in 2017 in late September. And after the surgery, I told the doctor that the hospital, I don't feel right. I don't think I should go home. And they said, no, you're okay. Go home. You can go home, Kenny. You can go home. And then all of a sudden, I come home. I'm not feeling well. I said, okay, well, I just had another surgery. My arm had a lot of stitches in it. I have a bleeding tube hanging out of my arm. I'll be okay. Two days later, I'm throwing up on my bedroom floor. I'm throwing up blood. I, I, you know, I don't remember much of it. I had a high temperature and uh, I remember going to the ambulance in the hospital and I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I know I was really sick and I know my fever was like 104 and I didn't remember a lot. So my boss at channel 26 free and wine trap called me and I told him I was Michael Jackson and I was packing to go on a victory tour. <laughs> and uh, so he called 911 and told him to break my door down and get me out of here. And what happened, I live in a building and my mom's on the second floor and she sees the fire department putting up with acts to break the door down. She said, hey, what are you guys trying to break my door down for? My, you know, to the building. They said, well, we had an, an emergency phone call. Kenny McReynolds was in distress. She said, well, I have the key. So they come into my apartment, but my burger alarm is on. So she didn't know the code. So now remember, my mom was telling me this, George, and I don't remember this. So the police come and they say, well, you can't take him out of here until somebody gives us the code. Oh my goodness. So my, so my mom is calling me Kenny, and I don't know I'm Kenny. I keep telling her I'm Michael. So she says, Michael, baby, tell mommy the code, and I give her the right code. You actually did that? Yeah, I gave her the right code. <laughs> and so they take me to the hospital, and this part I do remember. I remember they did old school. They put ice bags on me in the in the um, in the ambulance. So I get to the hospital, 
And then they give me a room right away. And all of a sudden, I do remember this part, George. I, I couldn't breathe. And every time I sat down, I was drowning. So they had to hold me up. My nephew held me up for seven hours. Every time I sat down, I would, I would, I was drowning in my own mucus. So they had to hold me up. So like eight doctors came in to try to decide what to do. And one lady doctor said, I don't know what to do. I said, well, don't look at me. I don't know what to do. So as you know, George, I've had a series of heart operations. So they hook up my heart to the monitor. And this guy in the monitor, the heart monitor, is yelling and screaming at doctors. Hey, his heart rate's down to 30. His heart rate's down to 10. Make a decision. We're going to lose him. His heart rate is really going down. So I'm telling Evan, I'm going to be the only guy I know to die the same day I get inducted into the Chicago Land Sports Hall of Fame. Because it was the same day. <laughs> and he's like, don't worry, don't worry. So then I look out the corner of my eye, and I, I can barely stand up, George. I mean, my knees are buckled. I can barely keep my eye open. And there's a security guard. And I say, dude, what are you here for? And he wouldn't say anything. I said, yo, blank, blank, why are you here? He said, do you really want to know? I said, I asked you a question. Why are you here? He said, well, they want me to guard your body, Mr. McReynolds, since you're a celebrity, until your family comes to claim it. This guy's thinking you're going to die. Yes, yes. They called him to guard the body. Because what happened was, when Bernie Mac died in the hospital, people were coming in like nurses taking pictures of them, dead, and selling them. So they called the security guard for when I died to not let anybody in the room except for my family to come claim the body. But I wasn't dead yet. So I remember the doctor screaming at the other doctor saying, hey, his heart rate down to 10, his heart rate down to 8. And the next thing you know, I don't remember anything except opening my eyes to the doctor saying, let's call it official date of death, October 2nd, 2017. And I opened my eyes. And I was like, oh, wow, that's a shame. Who died? And my nephew yelled at the doctor, look, he's talking. His eyes are open. Well, you know what happened <laughs> when I died? You know, they give you the, the things yes. on your chest to, to make you come back. They do it three times. And if you don't respond after the third time, they call it. So what happened after the third time with the, whatever those things they put on your chest, and you know, they say clear, I didn't respond right away. So that's why he turned his back to say, let's call it. But if I'd have responded right away, he wouldn't have said that. But there was a several seconds in between time that I didn't respond. And so he turned his back to tell the nurse to write it down, official date of death. And that's when I opened my eyes and said, wow, that's a shame. Somebody died. Who died? And I ended up in the hospital 17 days. What is this but, doctor doing for a living now? Well, people ask me all the time, <laughs> what did you think when that doctor said official yeah. date of death? I thought I need a new doctor. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah. but, but, you know, but uh, all honesty, I did not respond right away. That's why he said official date of death. And as my buddy Reggie Theus put it, he said, man, you died and they didn't want you in heaven or hell. They sent you back to earth. That's not a good thing. <laughs> they didn't want you anywhere. They sent you back. 
Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is presented by the Polina Market. And if you haven't been there, what are you waiting for? It's been Chicago's premier market for the finest meat since 1949, and it's only getting bigger and better. From the popular Wagyu steaks to their porterhouse and tomahawk selections, Polina leads the way, and you might just spend hours there perusing the frozen food section. Everything made fresh, including chicken pot pies, pulled pork, and a variety of meatloaves. You like brats? I love them, including their pork variety, which is so juicy and tasty on the grill. And now the Polina Market has seafood and sandwiches from the deli and wine and beer to match anything you buy. Plus, they expanded again, making the in-store experience even better, but you can still order online to pick up. Take my word for it, the Polina Market is as good as it gets and conveniently located at 3501 North Lincoln Avenue in Chicago. Check them out on their impressive website at polinamarket.com. Mention you found them through this podcast. Our final story in our look back belongs to one of the best storytellers I've ever encountered. Former Bears coach Dave Wanstead has the ability to command a room, especially when recounting countless stories about the Dallas Cowboys. But this one is about the day he was hired as the Bears coach, and it's one of those that will leave you laughing, but not surprised. Yeah, that's... uh... I didn't find that out, I think, until the day that him and I shook hands. And he kind of looked at me with a look that, oh, good to see you. Glad you're here. You know, uh, <laughs> excuse me for 10 minutes while I go in my office and Google your your history and you, so I can talk, give you something to talk about at the press conference. But it goes better than that. Uh, I, how about, so I take the job now. They changed the rule. The NFL changed the rule because I accepted and came out and accepted the Bears job when I was still the assistant head coach of the Dallas Cowboys and defense coordinator. And it was during the bye week. So, in other words, we beat San Francisco to uh, to go to the champions, to go to the Super Bowl. And then the next day or two, I fly to Chicago. And it was two weeks before the game. So I fly out to Chicago and do my press conference. I accept the job the Monday after we beat the 49ers to go to the Super Bowl. I accept the job that Monday. And I fly out like the next day or two with my wife to do the press conference. And then I'm going to come back. And now I got to get ready to try to beat the Buffalo Bills and win the Super Bowl. So... As, as my wife and I fly out and, and all I really got from Mike McCaskey, who was the president at the time, God bless his soul. And, um, and his secretary was, this is where you're staying. The driver will take you up to the uh, deer path in right there in, in Lake forest. And you're to check in under the name George Trafton. Now I'm thinking of myself, George Trafton. Okay. So, uh, so I look him up and he's a great bears player. The first center that ever played for the bears in, in the twenties first center. They, that has a reputation of every snapping the ball with one hand, I guess is what he's known for. Mm. Great player, hall of fame player. So, okay. So I got this piece of paper with George Trafton. So I'm saying to my wife, wow, this is really secrecy here. Now, Mike, I don't see Mike McCaskey. He's going to see me the next day. No, he's no, no, he's going to, yeah, I think he's going to see me the next day. We're going to go out to dinner or something, but this is like check into the hotel. 
go to your room, check in under a false name, and someone will pick you up in the morning, and here we go. I said, oh, I'm going to go along with it. Okay. Well, my wife and I get out of the car. I don't even get to the front door of the deer path in, and the doorman opens the door, and he says, Coach, welcome to Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I walk in the lobby, and the guy right there says, can I take your bag, coach? And I, so I look at my wife again. Now I, I got to go up to the front desk and tell this poor girl that I'm George Trafton. And I think, you know, and she looks at me and, and they're all standing there looking. So I sign in under George Trapp. And I said to my wife, ah, this is ridiculous. These guys are going to take the, I need a drink. These guys are going to take the, <laughs> take, t- take the bags up to the room. And I turned to the guy, I said, do you have a, a little lounge area, a restaurant? Well, I'm going to get something to eat and have a beer. And he says, yes, downstairs. So my wife and I, we go downstairs and we sit down and we order something to eat. The two of us in a booth. I remember it like yesterday. And, uh, you know, sure enough, the, 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 you know, the bartender, the waiter comes up, Hey coach, welcome to Chicago. I mean, there was no secret. Everybody in the hotel knew who we were and what we were doing. And um, I think my picture was in the front page of the paper. You know, in fact, somebody sent me a a copy of the Chicago Tribune and it said, he's the guy. And I was standing there on the sidelines of the Super Bowl in Dallas Cowboy gear. So yes, they knew. Heck yeah. Who didn't? He's, he's He's the guy. He's George Trafton. There you go. Yes. And then, oh, wow. It was a classic. I signed in under George Trafton. So I, I followed company line. So when Brian Harlan meets me and he doesn't even know that I'm in time and I'm the next head coach, did it surprise me? No. Now hearing the story that, that, you know, everything that was going on, it, it didn't surprise me. I, I just kind of got a chuckle out of it. Oh, wow. It was a classic. My thanks to Bob Costas, Len Casper, Eddie Olchek, Kenny McReynolds, and Dave Wanstead for our look back, and all the other guests who made up the first season of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. And of course, my thanks to TJ Rees for keeping this podcast on the map, Will Hatzel for his skills in making these episodes sound as good as they do, and T.T. Schinken for her great graphics. And thanks to our supportive sponsors, the Vienna Beef Company and the Polina Market. Join me next time for another episode of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that is all she wrote.